the most recent intergovernmental panel on climate change report is saying that we're in what they're calling the last chance decade. And of developed countries, Australia is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Well, today, I'm going to be speaking with someone who's leading the charge on science-based responses to climate change in this country, on Dr. Rama. You're listening to Dr. Rama with Steve Robson, bringing you the best of health, medicine and people. My guest today is Professor Hilary Bambrick, an environmental epidemiologist who heads up the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health. She's been working on population health for more than two decades. Professor Bambrick, welcome to Dr. Rama. Thanks, Steve, and please do call me Hilary. Oh, look, fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely fascinated. What would make somebody pursue a career in epidemiology and population health the way you've done it. How did you get started and how do you find yourself here? Well, I I guess I kind of fell into it. Um, You know, like a lot of people, I went to uni not really knowing what I wanted to do and, you know, had a bit of a fruit salad undergraduate degree. But uh, during that time, I studied human ecology and uh, one of the books that was uh, prescribed reading was a book called Planetary Overload by Tony McMichael. And um, that really opened my eyes. So that was published in, I think, about 1996, something like that. And, um, look, it it was an an absolute revelation to me, um, the sort of the dire situation that the the planet was in at that time. And it really was the moment that uh, set the direction for my career. And um, subsequently, you know, I I went on to do honours and a PhD and then uh, to my absolute delight discovered that Tony McMichael was uh, at the ANU, had come back to the ANU and um, I popped along to see him to introduce myself and told him I'd really like to work with him. Yeah, look, Tony was really an inspiring and towering figure and I think it's, it's amazing that you responded to something like that if you think about it, such a long time ago, because we didn't have the sense of urgency or crisis at the time, it obviously was an important thing for you to to do something and take some action. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, certainly in Australia, it didn't feel like there was much of a sense of urgency. And, um, you know, when we, you know, work, working on this in the sort of the late 90s and the early 2000s, we were, we were making, you know, projections about what the 2020s might look like. And it wasn't really that different, you know. So we, we basically, we, we got it wrong, you know, look, looking um, in hindsight. Um, we didn't realise that things back then that things were going to be picking up the pace uh, quite so quickly um, in terms of climate, but indeed in terms of the impacts on people's health from uh, from climate change already. So, um, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners, listeners themselves would have experienced extreme climate events that they would never have, you know, suspected to, to live through when they were younger. Yeah, look, I'm going to come back to that in a second. It's very clear that you've had an extremely rich career and taken a lot of really interesting, I guess, pathways as you've gotten to the career state that you are now. And you've done quite a bit of work overseas. And we've spoken in the past and you were telling me that you speak Ethiopian fluently <laughs> and were telling me that the Ethiopian stretch. <laughs> the Ethiopian word for scrambled eggs. Um, and I think I've got it right, ferfer. Is that how you say it? Something like that. It means mixed. Ferfer is mixed. So Mixed, yeah. mixed eggs. Yeah. Tell me about your, I guess, the things that you 
take away from the work that you did internationally in countries like Ethiopia? Yeah, look, I've, I've spent a lot of time, um, you know, several trips in, in Ethiopia working in um, informal urban communities in, in Ethiopia, um, sort of on, on community-led ad- adaptation to climate change. But I've also spent a lot of time working in the Pacific, um, including in remote islands. And I guess the, the kind of the big takeaway message from that is Australia is so far behind. We're still so far behind in terms of our thinking on climate change. Um, you know, we, we really have at least a you know, an entire lost decade in terms of action, uh, you know, even just recognising that climate change is a, is a significant issue for Australia. So, you know, if you take the Pacific Islands, for example, they've, been, they've had national adaptation plans for the last 15 years and Australia's just beginning to work on one, you know, so we're sort of well behind the eight ball and it's really, um, you know, it shows that we're, we're really throwing away or, or wasting the privileged position that we, we have, you know, given how wealthy we are as a country. Um, how much intellectual capital we have as a country um, to have not, you know, made any progress over decades when, you know, a number of countries who have, you know, much less um, much less wealth, much less um, sort of that capacity to, to respond is actually, you know, really showing us up for our lack of response. They've been well ahead of the game for a long time. Yeah, I, I can imagine a lot of Pacific countries have a, a relatively, you know, or an enormous vulnerability to a rising sea level. For example, they are relatively flat countries, and they would they would have a devastating effect on the on the countries. You were one of the people involved in writing the extraordinarily prescient Gano report, and we know that many of the predictions made in the report, of which you were you were part of the the group who created it, are beginning to come through. How do you feel looking back at the work you did? At the time, working with with Ross and the, and on the report, and what you're seeing now, what what does it evoke in you? So, so my involvement in that was very much contained to to the health impacts assessment work, um, and it was uh, work that was done um, very quickly on a tight budget, um, and you know was basically uh, surrounded by caveats. Um, so, you know, we we only um, had the capacity to look at I think three different health outcomes where we know that climate change affects much more, um, many more um, health outcomes than, than those. Um, and you know it also um again it was it was quite some time ago and i guess you know things so that was in 2008 things weren't so quite so urgent um it, it also had a particular focus on the economic costs so one of the things we looked at were was things like the, the cost of hospitalizations um and um you know what that might uh what might happen to those under various climate change scenarios um, so, you know, it was a significant piece of work and until this moment, um, you know, there, there's now a national climate risk assessment underway in 2023, but the last time anyone had it even a, a bit of a go was in 2008. So, you know, a very long time ago, the science has moved on in that time. Um, and again, you know, as I, as I mentioned, we only looked at just a, a few um just a few health outcomes and, um, you know, whereas climate change really, really affects many more. And we picked ones that were easy. And this is actually, it's a, it's a bit of an, um, a common thing that happens um, not just in epidemiology but in, you know, th- you know any studies when, you, when you're looking at um, modelling um, what might be happening. You pick things that are easy to do when, you know, some sort of relationship is known already to exist and you can extrapolate from that. Whereas with climate change, it's actually... 
you know, well understood by people working in the area that the biggest impacts are actually the ones that are really hard to measure. Um, so just to, to give some extreme examples, um, down the sort of more direct and very easy to measure end, we have a heat wave and certain numbers of people die. So you can say, okay, certain number of people, um, X number of people died from that particular heat event. So that's very easy to measure. Um, but if you have something like, um, you know, ongoing um, resource depletion in an area, um, mass displacement of people, increasing conflict, violence, war, um, all of those, and there's sort of the, the sort of the social things that go along with that. Those things are much much harder to, to model in the future, um, you know, based on climate. It's much less um, more diffuse, um, more diffuse impacts, and much much harder to measure. Hillary, you're clearly one of the the world's experts on the effects of climate change on the health of and and the effects on the health of of people but you as you were just speaking there if we find that large areas of our planet become essentially uninhabitable people have to go somewhere and that is ripe for uh, massive refugee crises for armed conflict and all of these things in themselves have an enormous conflict uh, potential for for ill health. Are you saying that it's actually really hard to even capture what may be the most important effects of all in, in our models and our predictions? It certainly is hard to capture in terms of quantitative work at this stage, but this is where the importance of imagination comes into play as well and being able to, to make connections and tell stories and, and to, to, you know, draw analogies from things that might have happened in the past or elsewhere on perhaps a smaller scale and being able to, to you know, use Use your imagination to, to you know, um, tell the stories about what things might look like in the future. Um, and I think that's that's a really important um, aspect of the, the work in climate change and when we're trying to think about what the future might actually look like because if you just look at the numbers and if particularly if you just look at averages, which is what people tend to do, um, you miss those uh, the potential to, to see what the extreme impacts might be. Um, so, for example, if we just looked at, at uh, you know, rising, average rising temperature, again, just to use heat because it is so easy, um, you know, if you just think, oh, average rising temperature, oh, look, one, one degree doesn't sound like very much or one and a half degrees doesn't sound like very much. But what that actually does is that you get those, you know, um, much more extreme days that might be 15 degrees above average, for example. Um, you get nighttime minimum temperatures that remain high and so people's bodies don't get a chance to cool off overnight. So that in itself is, is particularly dangerous. And those things aren't captured when you look at just the average, um, the average changes over time. So being able to to really sort of, um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a bit um, catastrophic kind of thinking and almost, you know, I guess almost sci-fi thinking when you when you start thinking about um, or imagining what the different futures might look like. But if we're going to be able to respond adequately, that's what the sort of thing we need to be need to be doing, and we need to be doing it now. Yeah, Hillary, I think you're absolutely one hundred percent correct about the, I guess, the importance of narratives and people being able to understand what these numbers that can often seem quite abstract mean to them. But narratives are also, in a way, almost like pandemics in themselves. And we have narratives that are incorrect. We see uh, the rise of myths and deliberate disinformation 
about the climate. Is this anything you uh, have any thoughts on about why these these uh, climate furfies, this dis- misinformation about climate change and what we need to do, seems to spread and take hold in the community? Yeah, look, it's something. It is. I don't think I've got any answers for you, but you know, just observations, I suppose, over over the last few decades. Is I found it extraordinary that um, climate change itself became politicised in Australia um, because. You know, conservative governments overseas recognised that climate change um, was a problem and the the only sort of political issue is, um, well, how do we respond to it? You know, for example, very basic level, is it more of a, a, you know, do we rely on private money or public money to respond to climate change? You know, if you just want to break it into the most um, simple sort of um, political forms. But in in Australia, the, the mere fact of climate change itself was politicised very early on. And I, I, I found that working in this area, I found that extraordinary, the sort of the, the blindness to the, to the evidence. Um, but I think it's actually, I mean, it, you know, misinformation generally is a significant um, issue uh, now and particularly rising out of the pandemic. And I mean, I also, um, you know, again, observations, I have zero zero data on any of this but um so yeah absolutely zero data on any of this but um thinking about the the people who were you know taken in by misinformation about COVID are also now ones who are particularly suspicious about climate change um, and the actions which might um, help avert climate change or help us respond to climate change and it's it's almost like everything's being tied up in some you know massive government conspiracy and my favorite um, thing is that you know when when people think that uh, climate change is a a massive uh, you know a massive conspiracy conspiracy between say the UN and WHO and academics and all the rest of it and I have to say you know having worked with WHO the UN and academics there is no way you could get anyone to agree on on (laughs) any kind of conspiracy or to work together so um you know to me that's the strongest evidence against um the you know any form of um sort of concerted uh, duplicity, if you like, amongst these uh, these disparate groups working together. So, um, yeah, so, so look, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know what we do. Um, I think, um, you know, we, we certainly keep plugging away and sort of getting the message out there. And, um, you know, I think as, as more and more people experience um, the, those extreme impacts of climate change, that, that in itself becomes very hard to deny, I suspect. Um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, vast parts of um, the east, uh, eastern Australia were consumed by bushfires, um, consumed by floods. I mean, it, you know, we sort of had, had many things. And um, and actually that's something we, with climate change too that, um, you know, makes things very complicated and hard to predict, predict as those sort of compounding um, kinds of emergencies, um, cascading, compounding, um, you know, you can't, you you might be dealing with bushfires and then you might suddenly be dealing with floods in the same area or um you know adjacent to each other at the same time you've got uh, these events happening over extraordinarily large areas and so you know in the past uh, Queensland might have shared their fire brigades with New South Wales but now everybody's you know totally stretched and similarly just even on a bigger scale on a much more global scale the northern and southern hemisphere fire seasons just to take that example um, now overlap and so, you know, that sharing of resources that used to happen during major catastrophes between North and South also becomes much more difficult as well. Yeah, I agree with you. It's really hard to to just not see what's happening right in front of you. And I agree with you completely um, about 
conspiracy theories. I, I mean, <laughs> nobody can keep a secret in my experience. Uh, you know, finding somebody with whom you can keep a, a secret is such a luxury. And, uh, you know, most organisations leak like a sieve. So I'm amazed that people really, really believe conspiracy theories. Look, Hillary, it's very easy to become pessimistic and to take a gloomy, uh, I guess, view of the future. But I'm going to ask you, I mean, can we be optimistic? I mean, can humanity still have a good good future? I think we have to be optimistic. Um, and But I guess it's not that, um, you know, it's not a passive optimism or a passive hope. It's a really active, um, angry hope, if you like, um, you know, something that spurs action. Um, you know, personally, it's, you know, my journey in this area has been an absolute roller coaster um, over the last 25 years. Um, you know, moments of moments of real kind of hope and action and, and moments of utter despair. Um, but I think, um, you know, and yet I still get out of bed every day. And I think, um, you know, that there's obviously we should have done a lot more 20 years ago. Um, but there is still um, time to to do um, do what we need to do now. Um, that it you know as as we said twenty years ago you know the longer we leave taking action the harder it's going to be the more expensive it's going to be and the more rapid it's going to be and we're now at that point so we do need to take sort of quite significant action it is does need to be urgent um, and it is it is more expensive but. Um, it's actually much more expensive if we don't do anything. Um, you know, the cost to people's lives, to communities, to the healthcare system, absolutely, um, you know, off the charts um, if we don't actually try to, you know, manage um, manage climate change as best we can now. And I guess a really important um, fact to note is that every fraction of a degree matters. So, you know, um, every fraction of degree of warming matters in terms of its health impacts, um, its environmental impacts. Um, so, you know, however much we can limit climate change um, will be better than if we don't try to limit it at all. Hilary, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed in front of what seems like an existential challenge. Are there things that people as individuals can do? Uh, any advice for, for people at the individual level? Yeah, look, I mean, I guess individuals make up collective actions. So, you know, I've seen some... Um, you know, some extraordinary brave uh, work uh, undertaken by individuals in terms of direct action, for example, um, to do with to do with climate change and drawing attention to the crisis that we're in. Um, you know, we vote. We're lucky. We live in a democracy. We vote. We do have power to change, um, to change for you know, to lobby governments to change policy. Um, but I think, you know, one of the hardest things that we're up against is where, you know, where the money is um, at the moment. And, you know, Australia still subsidises its fossil fuel industry, I think, to the tune of around $10 billion, a study, you know, a couple of years ago. Whereas if you actually remove those subsidies and, you know, heaven forbid, transplant them into renewable energy, you could, you could really change the, the shape of the market very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, there are things that, um, that we can do um, in terms of individual action um, one of the things 
um, you know, there is a lot of existential despair, um, as you mentioned, and one of the things that does actually help people's mental health when thinking about, um, you know, in relation to climate change is taking personal action. And that might be something like writing to your local member. It might be standing on a picket line. It might be gathering with other like-minded people to work out what you might do. Um, it might be, you know, helping to set up some sort of, um, I don't know, community microgrid of, you know, for solar and things like that, things that will make communities much more resilient um, to, to climate change. So, you know, that taking that personal action is actually personally beneficial as well as being, um, you know, if enough people do it collectively, um, you know, beneficial for um, in, a, in a broader sense as well. Hilary, it's been absolutely inspiring speaking with you today and I'm impressed that you've been able to take uh, time out of your busy schedule to speak with me. Um, you've had an extraordinary career and I'm sure there is so much more uh, ahead for you academically and in the field. Uh, I'd like to talk again sometime, but I just want to thank you so much for giving up some time to speak to me today. Thanks, Steve, an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today on Dr Rama. You've been listening to Dr. Rama, a podcast produced on Ngunnawal country by the Australian Medical Association. All rights reserved.